to the Smart Connector podcast, which looks at the power of connection in business and life. Featuring solo episodes as well as a range of exciting interviews with entrepreneurs across multiple sectors, we offer tips and advice to build your impact, wealth and success, attract others for all the right reasons, and become a Smart Connector, the architect of your amazing business and life. Welcome, everybody. We're live on the Smart Connector Group, and I'm here with the amazing Daniel Priestley. Welcome, Daniel. Jane, thank you so much for having me on your show. It's great to have you here. So just a little bit about Daniel, if you haven't heard of him already. So he's the founder of Dent Global and ScoreApp. He's Entrepreneur of the Year 2022, which is amazing, a four times best-selling author and a leading authority in scaling businesses. And his reputation and extensive experience within his own companies has seen him advising for Inc. 500 leaders and unicorn entrepreneurs, as well as appearing regularly in the media. Starting with absolutely nothing, Daniel's built many valuable and scalable businesses in Australia, the UK, the US and Canada and Singapore. And his mission is to develop entrepreneurs who stand out, scale up and make a positive impact in the world, which is fantastic. So really excited to get going, Daniel. And can't wait to ask you lots of burning questions. You far away. I'm, I'm all yours. All right. Okay. So, Daniel, you're a four times best-selling author. And so I thought we could maybe start there. So I've read all of your books. I'm a big fan of you and your books. So I thought if it's okay with you, I'm going to ask you some questions about those books, if that's all right. I love it. I love that you've read all four. That's brilliant. Yeah, they're really, really good. I recommend them highly. Okay, so let's start with perhaps one of your most well-known books, which is Key Person of Influence. So in this book, you offer a five-step method to become one of the most highly valued and highly paid people in your industry. So my burning question to you, Daniel, is has this become harder since the pandemic struck and since a lot of experts transition their business online? I would say it's not harder, but it's more essential. So when I first wrote the book, it was absolutely icing on the cake to have a personal brand. It was not an essential ingredient, but it was a, it's a highly effective strategy. One thing I've noticed since the pandemic is that if you don't have a personal brand, you get lost in the noise so easily and so quickly. Um, so it's become more essential than it once was. The strategy, the strategy itself is exactly the same to implement, and it's still very effective. So I talk about having a really clear pitch for what it is that you do and focusing in on a micro niche. And if anything, it's easier to find that micro niche today than ever before. It's easier to build your own online community than ever before. And, you know, that pitch can be on video, it can be in blog blogs and podcasts and all these different media. So there are many ways that you can get your message to marketplace. So I guess the strategy is still the same. And it's still highly effective, but it's more essential than ever in, than ever before. It's not a nice to have, it's a must have. Yeah, yeah. So you made a very interesting point about hyper-niching. So, Daniel, I'm sure a lot of people are getting stuck around that particular issue. So what's your kind of formula for hyper-niching as an expert? 
Well, a few things. Not that long ago, everyone was hyper-niched around geography. So most accountants had a, a practice set up in Wimbledon and most of their clients were in Wimbledon. And that was the hyper-niche was I'm an accountant in Wimbledon. So the niche was a tiny little geographical patch, which essentially limited you to businesses in that local area. So we're very comfortable and naturally orientated towards hyper-niching when it comes to geography. But what digital technology did is it said geography no longer really matters and essentially you can talk to people anywhere in the world they have to connect with you based on your ideas not your geography so what we're doing when we're hyper niching is we're just picking some ideas that people are going to connect with us on and we're focusing on being very clear about those ideas so anyone anywhere in the world can connect with us on those ideas now still some people get really hung up on the idea of niching and limiting themselves and all that sort of stuff a better word that some people connect with is campaigning. So if you don't think about niching, you just think about campaigning. So if I said to you, I want to niche my business for dentists, right, then people go, oh, my goodness, that's going to limit me. If I said, let's go campaigning for dentists, then that means, okay, it's just a campaign. I'm going to go on the lookout. I'm going to create some marketing materials. I'm going to run some events. I'm going to have a sales drive or a focus for a particular period of time on that particular segment. So for anyone who gets stuck with niching, another word for niching is just campaigning. I love that. That's really nice. What a beautiful way to put it, Dan. That's fantastic. So what I'd like to do next is to move on and ask you about The Entrepreneur Revolution, which is another one of your books. Now, in that, you talk about how to break free from the industrial revolution mindset. Quit working so hard, follow your dream and make a fortune along the way. So what I wanted to ask you about in the context of that is what is the industrial revolution mindset? Yeah, so the industrial revolution Obviously, an incredible time in human history. It was one of the times where human longevity exploded. We doubled lifespan. We lifted huge numbers of people out of poverty. So there's a lot that went right with the industrial age. But essentially, the industrial age was kind of signified by the idea that some people worked in a factory and some people owned a factory. And the factory workers and the factory owners were different people. They weren't from the same family. And normally they didn't cross paths. So it was very unlikely in the industrial age that a factory worker would suddenly just work harder and then end up owning the factory. That virtually never happened. And it also no. virtually never happened that if you're in the owning class, you would drop down and become a worker and end up on the factory floor. So the difference that happened in this digital age that, that kicked off you know, around the 2000s is that the person who owns the business and works in the business can be the same person. And we call that person an entrepreneur, someone who is essentially owning their own means of production, building their own business assets. They're building a business asset and leveraging a business asset. They are both the owner and the worker. Um, mm -hmm. And that entrepreneurial team that they've built around them, it's a very different environment than the traditional workplace that was geographically based workers and owners being different people. So the mindset has to change. We need to acknowledge that the schooling system really was designed to create good workers for the factory, right? So yeah. for example, school says to you, do not be disruptive or attention seeking. And yet business says you've got to be disruptive and attention seeking. Yeah. School says, do not get the smart kid to do your homework because that's cheating. And business says that's called a CFO. 
So you've got to switch your mindset a little bit and, and, and start unlearning some of the things that we learned at school and learning some of the things that are more right for the, the world that we live in today. Yeah, some really important points there. And, and just while we're on the topic, do you think our education system is due an overhaul? Well, the global education system, let's say. Yeah, I do think it is worth an, having an overhaul for that very reason. I think a system so big is going to take many decades to to turn around and it will have to it will have to shift and it will have to change. There's an explosive growth in homeschooling at the moment. Um, there's a, an explosive growth in alternative schooling systems that are being trialed. So I would say the disruption has begun, but the schooling system is one of these kind of huge oil tankers that takes mm. a long time to turn around. It's not a jet ski. So it's, it's going it's to be a while. Yeah, for sure. All right. So let's move on to one of your other books, which I love, which is Oversubscribed. So in that book, Daniel, you explain why and most importantly, how to ensure demand outstrips supply for your product or service. So what's the secret to doing this in today's saturated online marketplace? Yeah. Do you know, this is really fun. It's like a, it's almost like a pop <laughs> quiz on my own content. So let's talk about becoming oversubscribed. Okay. When something is in plentiful supply and there's an unlimited supply of something, it doesn't matter what it is, the price always falls to zero. So for example, Google spent billions sending satellites into the atmosphere in order to provide Google Maps, but because it's in such plentiful supply, as in it can do it nonstop, essentially it falls to the price of zero. Google search falls to the price of zero, but the top three rankings are in limited supply. So people are willing to spend a lot of money to be featured on those top three rankings. So pretty much everything comes down to demand and supply. Why does a Rolex sell for $15,000? Because more people want one than they have available. How mm -hmm. do we use this as business owners? Number one, we have to have what's called an official capacity. Official capacity is we have to decide in advance how many clients we're happy to work with, how many people we can provide a superior level service to, and we need to know at what point do we become oversubscribed. If you own a cafe, a restaurant, or a nightclub, they actually give you a rating that says how many people are allowed to be in the nightclub at any given time, um, mm -hmm. and you're not allowed to go over that number. So you've got to imagine your business is a little bit like a nightclub, and you say, look, I can only take 15 clients per year, or I can only take you know, 150 clients per year, whatever the number is, that's your official capacity. We then have to recognize that we only become oversubscribed when we have a 10 to 1 ratio of signaled interest to capacity. So mm -hmm. when you've got 15 client spots available, if you've got 150 people who say, I would love to be one of your clients, that is the equivalent of having a lineup out the front of your nightclub. Mm -hmm. And what we need is we need a 10 to 1 ratio. So 10 to 1 is signaled interest, to official capacity and signaled interest can be people filling in an online form. It could be people attending events. It could be people joining communities or groups that you run. So essentially you've, you've got to have a process of creating signaled interest. And this becomes really powerful when there's transparency, when people can see that there's a limited capacity and they can also see that there's lots of people who want to work with you. So when there's some form of transparency, that creates a bit of tension, demand and supply tension, and that demand and supply tension sets the price a little bit higher and more profitable. Mm. 
That's really interesting. So in terms of you talk about transparency, so in what form does that transparency tend to manifest itself in your business, for example? So when we ran big events, we would have four or 500 people in a big event and we would Mm -hmm. actually say, and not as a gimmick, as a very genuine thing, we'd say we have the ability to take on 40 clients. And when Mm -hmm. 400 people are in the audience and there's 40 spots available, and that was by design, we know that we can only take 40 clients. So we deliberately ran an event for 400 people. Yeah. So what happens is that people feel a sense of urgency and they feel a sense of excitement, maybe a little bit of FOMO in order to come and work with us. Now, the truth is that out of those 400 people, there were, there's probably 200 people who were never going to work with us ever. They just turned mm-hmm. up for a, an event. But there's a small, the smaller group of people who really want to work with us. It just creates that little bit of tension and excitement to get on and come and work with us. So that's an example of demand and supply tension. It can also be done if you run a group. Let's say you've got a group with 5,000 people on Facebook. That creates a bit of demand and supply tension. If you're a best-selling author and people know that you've sold lots of books, they assume because you're a best-selling author that there must be plenty of people who want to work with you. So that also creates a bit of demand and supply tension. The other thing too is there's a magical ingredient. When you are genuinely in demand and genuinely lots of people want to work with you, you have this magical ingredient called with or without you energy. With Uh or without you energy is basically... I'm going to be fine with or without you. And you don't have to say it. It's just somehow it magically glows off you. So essentially what you need is a little bit of with or without you energy of my diary is pretty full and and things will happen with or without you. And I'm not saying you would say that, but I'm saying that there's an energy that you get about you when things are flowing. Yeah, it's a completely the opposite of that kind of like needy kind of buy from me type energy, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's like, uh oh, I'm I'm running out of running out of <laughs> cash flow type thing. Uh oh, I need to sign someone up. It's the hardest time to sign someone up. Yeah. It's like getting a bank loan when you need the money. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Well, so we've covered three of your four books. So whistle stop tour this is. So let's move on to twenty-four assets. So in that book, which is also an absolutely brilliant book, you describe how in every industry there are companies that take off. They effortlessly hire talented people, attract loyal customers, create cool products and make lots of money. And they stand out and scale up quickly with support from investors, partners in the media. So why is it that some companies perform in this way and some don't? And why is it that some entrepreneurs are not creating anything of value? Yeah, so I was one of those entrepreneurs not creating anything of value in the late 2000s. I was building a very successful business. We had millions of revenue, but when I went to try and sell it, I couldn't. In fact, for a business that had previously done 4 million of revenue, the best offer I got was 300,000 pounds. And when I asked wow. a cons- Yeah, yeah, I know. When I asked a consultant, I said, "Why is my business not worth anything?" He said, "Well, that's easy. Your business doesn't have any assets." Uh, And I said, Mm -hmm. what do you mean by that? And they said, well, you're just a brokerage model business. You sell somebody else's assets. You're you're basically trading on somebody else, what someone else has created. I said, well, what kind of assets do I need? And he said, well, you you need to have your own database. You need to own your own products. You need to have your own brand. You need to have your own team and culture, and it needs to all be formalized. So I started that journey there 
with a consultant mm-hmm. basically telling me these are the types of things that valuable companies have and you don't have any of them. So I went on a deep dive and basically said, well, what are the assets that you can invest into? And in particular, I found a list of digital assets because we're all very familiar with the industrial age assets of plant and equipment and machinery and those kind of things, property. But the digital assets are things like positioning in the market, branding, culture, intellectual property, product ecosystems. These are the things that are essentially digital assets. So I define Mm -hmm. an asset as anything that does the heavy lifting when you're somewhere else. So if you're on a holiday and you've got Mm -hmm. a If you've got a thing that's doing some heavy lifting, like a YouTube channel, like a podcast, like a scorecard, all of those things are digital assets that lift what's happening when you're not around. And the more assets that you have, the easier business becomes. You have more fun, you have more money, you have more scale. And digital assets are just great for, for doing all of those things across the world. They really are. And so that leads us neatly into ScoreApp, which is also your creation, right? Now, ScoreApp, we were just having a chat before we were talking on the podcast today, and I have recently launched my first scorecard. So I also invested. I came on one of your webinars. I learned about ScoreApp and I thought this is something that I definitely need. So I I recently created one. I'm a big fan already, and I'm already starting to use mine. So I'd love to just talk about ScoreApp. Where did you get the inspiration for that from? And then maybe we can just go into some of the features and the benefits and why Mm. people would want to use it. So from the 2000s to 2013, I was running huge events all over the world. Brisbane, Mm -hmm. Sydney, Melbourne, Singapore, London, Birmingham, Toronto, Tampa, we were just traveling uh, traveling around the world and we would run these events with 500 people and we were making lots of money, but it was absolutely exhausting. And I was a single bachelor at the time, so it was totally doable, but I was starting a family. In 2014, we had had first child. I've got three kids now. And I was really terrified of how, how do I how do I do, juggle this? How do I grow a business and be a dad? I've gone and built this business that works for a bachelor but doesn't work for a dad. And, mm-hmm. uh, and I thought, you know, how is it that I'm going to generate clients and how am I going to meet people wherever they are in the world? So one of the things that we, I, we discovered was that people loved reading my books, which was great, but I didn't know who the readers were. I thought, mm-hmm. wouldn't it be cool if I could get people to fill an online quiz out or a questionnaire and then I would have their contact details, but I'd also have all the things, you know, all the questions that they fill in. So we'd be able to talk to them and have a sensible conversation. So if they could do a self-assessment, mm-hmm. then that would basically be a really great way of generating clients. So we launched this in 2014 and 90,000 people took the key person of influence scorecard over the next couple of years. Wow. Um, and it, yeah. And it generated over 10 million pounds worth of sales. So it was a huge home run for us, right? So I ended up launching the 24 Asset Scorecard, the Campaign Scorecard, the Key Person of Influence Scorecard, and the leads came flooding in. And these leads were what you would call a full report lead. So a full report means you've got their name, their email, their location, and 50 things about them because they answered all the questions. So these were phenomenal leads. And basically our salespeople just didn't need us to run the big events anymore. They just happily talked to people about their scorecard results and how to improve their scorecard. 
So this was powering our business for five years. And then a lot of clients were saying, hey, I want to run this kind of marketing. I want to do scorecard marketing as well. And we launched the platform in 2020, right before the pandemic. And oh, good timing. Uh, good timing. And it's been an explosive yeah. growth business. So something like 2,000 companies have now adopted scorecard marketing. 25 a day are signing up at the moment to join us mm -hmm. on the scorecard marketing journey. And basically, people set up their own assessment, their own quiz, their own questionnaire. And our software, our platform makes it really easy to have a landing page, questionnaire, and a results page. Uh, and then they promote that, and then they get lots of leads. So, uh, for example, we've got a scorecard for are you ready to run a marathon? We've got a scorecard for get fit after 40. Uh, we've got a scorecard for is your business cybersecurity safe? Uh, mm -hmm. We've got a scorecard for are you ready to launch a new business? We've got one for are you ready to sell a business? So people come up with their own concepts. They come up with their own ideas and their own questionnaires. They launch it on the platform and then it starts generating leads for them month in, month out like it did for us. Well, that's if it works, right? So they've got to test it to see if it works for their business. And, uh, and if it works for their business, it tends to be an evergreen asset that they can, uh, that they can keep generating leads month in, month out. Yeah. And the nice thing about it, as I said, I've just launched mine is, well, you can have some fun with it. You can definitely kind of design it, of, of course, according to your own, in your own mold, as it were. But you can also link other assets to it, can't you? So, for example, I give people an option to go into my video sales letter. They can either just book a call with me right from the scorecard itself, or they can go a little bit further. So it's very flexible and very adaptable, isn't it? Yeah. And if you've got existing content like you do, mm -hmm. uh, going back through the show notes and, and telling people in the show notes, take the scorecard um, or on the, on the YouTube videos, we've had several clients who have just linked it up with their existing content, their existing book or videos or podcasts or blogs. And they, they go from having anonymous viewers and anonymous listeners to having five to 10 people a day filling in the scorecard, essentially signaling their interest in doing business. Yeah, yeah. And that's the thing that I really like about it, because as soon as somebody fills it in, get you get the detailed information, you know who it is, and you can just have a look at everything, which, of course, is very valuable data, isn't it? It is, yeah. These self-assessments, they've been around for a long time. People have, people have probably taken a personality test. Maybe they've taken an, are you an introvert or an extrovert or those kind of things. But the innovation is this ability for anyone to set one up and anyone to use it as a lead generator. So it's, mm -hmm. it's you know, especially works with coaches and consultants, experts. Yeah. Uh, the ability to get people to self-assess whether they need you or not is super yeah. powerful. Definitely. And as I said, well, I recently acquired a client who came through it the other day. So I did a training to my group about it because I'm recommending it to everybody. And I absolutely love it. And I'm not a particularly technical person, but it's actually very easy to use. It really is just a kind of it's a template. And some of my clients were getting stuck at different points. And I just pointed out to them that, look, you don't the scorecard actually does a lot of the work for you. It's, I mean, I based mine on a template and then I looked at a couple of other people's and I thought, oh, you know, maybe I can tweak it here and tweak it there. But there are actually lots of templates in the system, aren't there? So it's not like you are, your hand is being held right from the very start. It's yeah, not like your hand is being held to get started. I would really yeah. encourage the long term, three months in, four months in, 
it's really powerful to have your own unique methodology, your own unique mm-hmm. way of doing it. So the templates are a great place to start, but yeah. where it really sets you apart and makes you decommoditized is when you've come up with some sort of a signature method or a signature way of doing things. So for example, the seven habits of highly effective people. If you had a seven habits of highly effective people scorecard, obviously yeah. the author or Franklin Covey, you know, that's their own proprietary way of viewing the world. And that's going to be incredibly attractive to people to engage with that signature method or that signature content. The big difference, here's an interesting thought. I was talking to a senior leader at a multi-billion dollar company in London And I was looking at their website with them. And basically, I said, let's have a look at the website. How long could I spend on this website learning about your company? And we went through and we saw blogs and we had there was a section of video webinars and there was a section of like about us. Every single member of the team and there's hundreds of team members had their own like about us page and all this sort of stuff, like an incredibly comprehensive. I said, okay, let's flip the script. If I want to tell you about me, right? How can I do that? And then we found there's one button that says contact us. So I clicked the contact us button that says, what's your name? What's your email? What's the nature of your inquiry? Right? So imagine meeting someone at a cocktail party and they just go, like, this is all about me. This is all about me. This is all about me. And you go, well, how do I tell you about me? And how how do we communicate back and forth? And it's like, no, no, there's none of that. So most people, that's how their website comes across. That's how their content, they've got videos, they've got podcasts, they broadcast, broadcast, broadcast. The scorecard is the first thing that allows the customer to say, hey, look, let me tell you about me. Let me, yeah. let me answer some questions and signal and give you some information about what I'm up to. Yeah, and, and of course, that, that makes people feel important. And anybody, any client needs to feel important. They need to feel as though they matter, don't they, right from the very start? Because if they think it's all about you, then they're just going to be turned off, aren't they? Yeah, and, and they need to feel something personal, like a personalised. Mm-hmm. The one thing that's lovely with a scorecard is when you sit down with that customer and you say, hey, look, you did really well at Category A, and category B is where you need some work. And category C is okay. It's in an acceptable range. But let's start working together on category B. And then we'll go C. And then we'll make sure that you maintain high standards from there. And then people feel, oh, wow, you're really tuned into my personal situation here. Yeah, yeah. And I think the interesting thing about it, as I said, having just been through this process myself, is that you can actually, you can have a more basic version or you can have a more advanced version. So obviously I've been getting the emails as well. So I was telling my group the other day that one of the things that they were saying is I don't really know how to write the results page. And I said, well, you can include some of the information depending on whether people are in the the low or the medium or the high score. They can still be some of the same recommendations because it doesn't really matter. But in terms of the actual interpretation of the content, you can either give that to them on a call so that can form part of your of your initial call with them or you can actually upgrade and you can have a more sophisticated version of it that actually self-generates a pdf report right Mm. have i got that right (laughs) yeah exactly the pdf report is a nice tangible thing that people often they print it out but it's an advanced move it's not necessary for most people to get started 
Mm-hmm. Um, when our clients that score up, when they become more and more confident with the system and with the scorecard and they want to add some tangibility to it, then they go and they write the PDF. Now, if you've not seen the system, you think to yourself, how on earth do you write a PDF that changes and alters based on how people answer the questions? And actually, you're, the magic behind it is that you're just adding content for low, medium, and high. So if people get a high score, they get this content, medium score, they get this content, low score, they get this content. And actually, it's pretty easy to do. And as you say, most of the content can be 80% the same, but it's a really nice way for people to, to, to be able to connect and see a personal report as to how they could, how they could improve. Daniel, if I understand this correctly, this will create pull marketing as opposed to push marketing, smooth, elegant, consultative sale. Would you say that's right? Yeah, that consultative sale is where we really come into our own. So most of the people have some sort of consultative sale that they do. They, They normally need to talk to a customer, find out what situation the customer is in before they can then make a, a recommendation about a course of action. And the scorecard just speeds all of that up. Yeah, that's fantastic. Well, thank you so much for clarifying the, those things, Daniel. As I said, I'm really excited about the, the scorecard. And I've also got my affiliate link. So if you do use it, then there's the opportunity to introduce others, isn't there, as well, and actually earn from it and create a little micro business around scorecards. So, yeah. So what I'd like to do next, if it's okay with you, I just want to talk more about you personally, because, you know, we've got straight into it, I think, because I'm so familiar with you, and I'm a fan of you, and I've read all your books, and I'm using your, your scorecard, and so on. But I think, from the point of view of our listeners and our viewers, I'm sure that they're probably thinking that they'd like to learn more about you. So I'd just love to get into the history, really, of, of how you came to be where you are now and where did it all start (laughs) sure so I was a strange kid in the sense that I actually liked the idea of being an entrepreneur as a teenager I met I worked at McDonald's when I was 14 and the my McDonald's was owned by a, a guy who owned six McDonald's franchises and I got the chance to start talking to him about being a business owner and an entrepreneur and I he recommended a book called the e-myth when I was a teenager and Mm-hmm. Suddenly I was like, wow, okay, there's this whole world and this feels like it really suits my character. And I did some things as a teenager like selling flowers door to door and running garage sales and I ran a nightclub party or we ran a series of nightclub parties for teenagers and I was just hooked on this idea of being entrepreneurial. So I went to university and I discovered that in business school none of them had actually started a business. They were all They'd all worked in businesses, but none of them had started businesses. And I was really disappointed. So I dropped out, not knowing what I would do. Extremely lucky. I found my way into a startup that was just getting started right at the beginning. There was four of us around a table and the entrepreneur hadn't even picked a name for the business, hadn't set up a bank account. And basically we launched a business and we started a business together. And that business within two years went from the kitchen table to 6 million of revenue, 60 people working in a team in in Melbourne. And the very unique thing is from 19 to 21, I just had this wild roller coaster ride of being part of decisions and meetings and all of those sorts of things that no normal 19 year old will get a chance to be in. So, you know, marketing conversations and finance conversations 
I was really truly mentored in the idea of what you would think of it as mentoring, as in I literally spent time 40 hours a week under the wing of the guy who was launching the business. And then two years in, the business had outgrown me personally. So most businesses start with a team of generalists and then end up needing specialists. And I was just this Swiss army knife kid who could do 25 things badly. So I felt like I was displaced. So I said to my boss at the time, John, I said, can I get shares in the company? Because I want to, didn't want to get pushed out. And he actually flipped on me and he said, if you want shares in a company, you should go start your own company. And I was like, oh, okay, wow, I can <laughs> tell where this is headed. So I did go off and start my own company. I was 21 years old and, and it was really incredible. I applied all the lessons that I'd learned and built a $10 million company over four years. So it was a, a very fast growth business. It was three years actually, because I was 24, 25 when we hit a million a month. Wow. And yeah, it was, it was just a, an amazing fast growth ride. And that was my start in business. That is incredible. I mean, how many 24 and 25 year olds have actually managed to do something like that? That is amazing. So, I mean, Daniel, is that, do you think that's because you're just a, a, like a really special and clever person? Or do you think, you know, somehow there was some luck that came into it or sort of, a, you know, a yeah. following wind or? As much as I would love to think that I was special and clever, it was, it was very much luck. You know, I was, uh, for starters, born in the born in the right place at the right time. Um, mm -hmm. You know, I've traveled all over the world, including places like rural India, rural Africa. And, you know, if you're not born in, you know, being born in Australia is a huge advantage. Being born around the time where the end of one era and the beginning of another era and technology, it's all taking off and not being established in a career at that particular moment and being completely footloose and fancy free and open for ideas. So there's a lot of luck just in that. I was incredibly lucky to get a mentor. I think, you know, if you're, if you find yourself under the wing of the right person, it's half the battle. It really is. In fact, I mm -hmm. often tell young people, do whatever you can to go and work for someone who really inspires you, someone who, who can teach you and who, who enjoys the mentor-mentee relationship as, you know, uh, as mentor. So I would say mostly luck. I've been, I've been really lucky and I've been able to surf the wave along the way. Oh, that's amazing. But I know that being clever also comes into it and being a very strong communicator as well, because that's definitely something that a talent that you have, I think. Yeah. So Daniel, what's next for you? What are you kind of really passionate about and about still wanting to achieve? Well, I'm really passionate about the times that we're in. And I love entrepreneurship. I love the power of entrepreneurial teams. I find that entrepreneurial teams of people have this magical transformational power where they tackle a problem so fast in such a scalable way. My real passion is this idea that entrepreneurial teams should be focused on meaningful problems in the world. Mm -hmm. And so our accelerator program that we run is all about that. It's basically getting entrepreneurs to pick a big problem and to say, you know what, if we're going to do this entrepreneurial thing, let's solve a meaningful problem in the world. Let's get a team of people surrounding that problem Let's build a business that is also good for the world. We want commercial success. We want businesses that are very financially successful, but we want businesses that are doing something in the way of shaping the world for the better. So the types of businesses I'm really interested in accelerating is anything that's making a positive impact in the world. 
and also being financially successful. I don't think those two things are separate things anymore. I think those two things can totally be the same thing. And especially when you get a, a very passionate, dynamic, small group of people rallying around a, a big idea, that's to me, that's electrifying. So for me, the rest of my life is pretty much that. It's develop entrepreneurial teams that stand out, scale up and make a positive impact. Yeah, that's amazing. Now, somebody was actually speaking to me the other day about B Corp companies, and I hadn't really heard of that. But he explained to me what B Corp companies are. And it's like, okay, I completely get this now, because they are companies who are actually relentlessly focused on that, right? Focused on kind of purpose and ethics. Yeah, it's a disruptive business idea that, Mm -hmm. and I'm not an expert in this, but One thing I do know is that a business entity, a limited liability entity is a legal entity and it's set up from the outset. But mind you, I'll say this first, the limited liability company is one of the greatest human inventions of all time, right? So if you think about the great human inventions, the limited liability company has to be up there as one of the best human inventions that we've ever come up with because it's probably been responsible for more innovation than anything else. It's been the structure that has allowed huge technical advances, funding, a flow of capital towards problems. So I'm a big fan of the limited liability company, except for Mm -hmm. in the same way that B Corporation has identified this same problem. Essentially, the law says that if you have shareholders, your only job as an executive is to represent the shareholders as a director. Your job is to make sure the shareholders maximize their profits And essentially, to the technical letter of the law, if you're knowingly doing anything that doesn't maximize the profits for the shareholders, you you can actually be in breach of the the law there. I mean, obviously, there's varying degrees of that. But the idea behind B Corp is what if there was an extra dimension to limited liability companies? What if they didn't only have a responsibility to shareholders, but they also had a responsibility to the environment and, and to the community? What if they were, they were there to, businesses were there to be good citizens as well as successful companies? And essentially what B Corp does is it says, let's change the articles of association of our company to reflect that value. So I'm not, as I say, I'm not an expert, but I'm a fan. Yeah. And I like the, I like the idea behind it. Yeah, yeah, I love that. Well, thank you so much. Daniel, it's been such a pleasure to talk to you today. And I know that you've got a very special evening lined up, haven't you, with your wife? So date night. <laughs> yeah, date night. Yeah. And and you're going to go and see a band. So which band are you going to go and see tonight? It's really, it's really embarrassing. It's a heavy metal band called Tool. And okay. During the pandemic, my wife, when I was a teenager, I used to always listen to this band called Tool in like the late 90s. Pretty oh, yeah. heavy, heavy, pretty heavy music. And uh, anyway, my wife got really into their most recent album, which is a little <laughs> bit more, a little bit more mellow. But she played this album to death in 2020, 2021. <laughs> it was always on in the car. And uh, anyway, so we're, we're heading off to see Tool tonight. <laughs> oh, that's amazing. Well, I hope you have a wonderful time. So Daniel, what's the best way for people to access your content? Obviously, apart from, I mean, you're ridiculously easy to find, obviously, because you have a big footprint. And of course, all your books are on Amazon and so on. But what's the best way for them to to kind of access ScoreUp and to maybe get in touch with your business to inquire about yes. some of your programs? How can they do that? So, Jane, the front end of ScoreUp, if you go to scoreup.com, has a 14-day trial, but you've got a special link 
that you'll I share have. that has a 30 day free trial. So you double the amount of trial that people can get. So um, yep. make sure if you're watching this, if you make sure that you sign up on that special link to get twice as much free trial, that's, that's definitely how you want to access score app. And then if you want to follow me, I'm on Twitter and Instagram and, and, and Facebook and LinkedIn and all of those kind of places. And I'm active across, across those feel free to message me or direct message me and uh, yeah, all the books on audible and Amazon and hopefully we get a chance to meet personally. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Well, well, thank you very much again for coming on the show, Daniel. It's been such a pleasure to interview you and I hope you have the most amazing and fun evening as well. Thanks Jane. All the best. Thanks for listening in. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to rate and review my podcast as it will help me bring the power of connection to the world. I work one-to-one to help entrepreneurs ignite the power of authentic connection in their businesses and lives. I also help them accelerate their results through attracting and converting more of their ideal clients. And if this is something you'd like to do too, why not head on over to www.idealclientsuccess.com masterclass and I'll show you how.